Well, it's good to be with you. I, sometimes I'm amazed when I sit down and we begin, I think, oh, everyone's on vacation today, and I turn around after we sing, and like, where'd you all come from, right? So, but it's good to have friends with you today. Hey, we are in our journey through the life of David in First and Second Samuel, and we have arrived at the point um, that Mark preached on last week where David has finally been anointed king. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to watch how that process happens. And it's been, I found it actually this week, just so incredibly both inspiring and humble to walk in this story and to watch the example that David gives us. I've been inspired because, you know, one of the things about preaching the Old Testament that comes up is like, well, is it really relevant or timely for us? Does it have something to say? Shouldn't we just focus on Jesus? And yes, we should focus on Jesus. But, um, man, David's life has so much to tell us. He models for us in a way, or at least at this part of the story, until we get to that whole Bathsheba thing, um, what it means to be God's man, right? I know, I've read ahead. I know how the story ends, right? <laughs> it doesn't end well. But to this point, it's been pretty awesome and pretty timely. And it's about, you know, a, right now a transition of power between Saul's reign to David's reign. And David shows us how to do that right. And boy, that's a timely thing for us, isn't it? The other thing about this story that I found so helpful and humbling is that he sets the bar so very high, doesn't he? He is a wonderful example for us because he knows what it means to be God's man. He knows how to live that life. And he is unwilling to compromise it, even if it's for his own advantage. And so that's where we're at as we watch him make this transition. Is David perfect? No, we're getting to that part, right? we got a couple chapters till we get to chapter 8. But he really shows us why he's called a man after God's own heart in some of these stories. And so that's where we're at today. And I hope you're enjoying it as much as I have, because it has been good for my soul this week to think about this. And you're going to think I'm crazy when I read you the second half of the story today, because it's bad news. But um, the first part is really good. I'm going to pray for us again, just because uh, I have to. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the life of David. And I thank you for my friends here. I pray this morning as we listen to what you have for us that our hearts might be soft and that we might see you and your intentions for us and be encouraged to be more like you today when we leave this place than we came. We love you and know that you are our hope and our hero. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's get to it. A little review. Last week, Mark told us that David is the king, right? He was crowned in Hebron, but it's also important to note that he is only king of Judah. One small part of Israel. The other 11 tribes are still following Saul. We were also told, and Mark did a great job of saying that David is king in Hebron, which is the place of his ancestors. But where did he come from? The text tells us in verse 2 that he came from Ziglag. You're like, well, what's Ziglag? Let me, let me make this perfectly clear to you. Ziglag is Orland. There's nothing there. It's a wasteland. You don't want to be from this place. And so as he's gone to Hebron, he's like arrived. And now he's in a place of importance for the people of Israel. So it's a foreshadowing of what's to come, huh? Doesn't God work that way in our lives a lot of the time? Gives us a tiny little taste of what heaven's going to look like, but makes us trust and wait and persevere and before we get to taste it in full. 
The next thing that we need to note that happens in the beginning part of chapter 2 is there's this guy named Abner. Abner was Saul's right-hand man. His number one, right? And Saul has been killed and Abner's left and he basically does what most number ones do in a transition of power like this. What's he do? He grabs for all he can get, doesn't he? How does he go about doing this? Well, it's important to note, you know, David made a promise to Jonathan and Saul that he would not touch the heirs of Saul once he was to take over as king, right? He wouldn't harm them. But it just so happened that David wasn't at the battle and Saul's three sons, including Jonathan, are killed in the battle that Saul is killed in as well. But there's one son remaining, a son named Ish-bosheth, which translates into man of shame. That's very interesting. We see that in chapter uh, verse 8. And Abner grabs him and establishes and places him on the throne. Now, it's really interesting that Ishboseth doesn't claim the throne for himself, but we're told that Abner basically goes and gets him and puts him on the throne. Why has it happened that way? What are they telling us? Who's really in charge here? Abner is, right? So he is crowned and placed over all of Saul's kingdom, and the eleven other eleven tribes of Israel are under his his beckoning. So Abner and Ishbosheth are working together and trying to consolidate the reign of Saul, while David has this one little outpost in Judea. It's an important one, but it's one. And you know, one of the things that surprised me when I was rereading and studying this story again is you kind of think that once at the end of chapter First uh, Samuel one, when David, when Saul died, David goes right to the throne and everything's rosy from there, huh? But that's because I wasn't paying close enough attention to these first chapters of Second Samuel. It takes seven years from the death of Saul until David is established of king of all of Israel. How many of us were aware of that? And that was seven years of political and military and battle and turmoil, huh? It seems like it went in an instance, but can you imagine living through that? What's going to happen? How's it going to turn out? Sleepless nights. Pain, suffering, and turmoil. Seven long years. And that's where we pick up the story today. I want to take a, want to have us take a look at two things. The first story I want to take a look at is um, 2 Samuel 2, verses 4 through 7. And that's David's first act as king. Okay? David's first act as king. Because I think it's telling why he's called a man after God's own heart. This is still not up. Is it not working? I hate this thing. (laughs) I got a friend back there in the back. We'll get through this. All right, let's take a look. (laughs) We thought we fixed it between services. When David was told that it was the men from... Jabesh Gilead, who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them, saying to them, The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you for showing kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. You'll remember Saul was killed in battle and left there beheaded and disgraced. And these guys from this village came and found him and took him back home and buried him. And then David continues, may the Lord show your kindness, may the Lord show kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show you the same favor. I'm going to translate it kindness because it's the same word, because you have done this. 
Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judea have anointed me king over them. So, on one level, if we don't remember the background, we might see this insignificant. But this place, Jabeth-Gilead, is in a really important place for Saul. In 1 Samuel 11, when Saul hasn't yet been anointed king, the Amorites had come to this village and they were going to wipe it out. And the people of this village um, were stuck. And they didn't have the, the military power to fight them off. And they were hoping that the people of Israel would come and help them out. But no one came. And so they started to negotiate with the Amorite king. And they said, you know what, we'll be your subject. Just don't kill us all. And he said, that'll be fine, except for if we're going to do that, I'm going to poke the eye out of all your men. It's not a great deal for them, right? So um, it's like Christmas story, but worse, right? You'll poke your, poke your eye out. Um, and so they said, well, give us seven days to think about that, right? <laughs> I don't know why seven. In the process, Saul figures this out or hears it, and he gathers his army together. They come to the town. They split up in three parts, and they defeat the Amorites and save the village. So what do you think that did with that village and their relationship with Saul? That made it his heartland, huh? It's a little dangerous to do that, but that made it his blue a blue state or red a red state, depending on how you want to see that. They would have been loyal to him. These are the folks that buried him. And it made perfect sense that they would be show their faithfulness to what he did for them by going and get the body and giving it a proper burial. So think about that. And then David responds to him. Let's read this next slide about, um, yep, I already did that. Next one. About David's response to them. And the language David used here is so, so very important. The Lord bless you. Next slide. Why was the Lord bless you? What does bless mean? To show kindness to, right? To impose goodness upon these people. If I bless you, it isn't just something I say because you sneeze. It's going to say, I want good to come to you. Right? In the Old Testament, that blessing is often associated with lots of children. We're doing great at that at Sierra Grace. The God has blessed us. (laughs) And then what's he do next? He uses this same word, hesed, which is translated kindness or favor here. For you... The Lord bless you. Why is the Lord should the Lord bless you for showing kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him and may the Lord now show kindness and faithfulness. And I, too, will show you the same kindness because you have done this. You showed Hesed. May the Lord show Hesed and I will show Hesed. There are three words. I want to say this is the most important word in the Old Testament, but preachers always overstate these things, and I'm trying to be disciplined. There are three really important words in the Old Testament that show us the character of God. He created Barak. He was faithful, Emmat. And he was, actually he blessed, right? Barak, uh, faithful. And then He showed loving kindness, Hesed. Why is Hesed so important? I've told you this before. It's love that's based in faithful action. It's not emotional love like we celebrated with Valentine's Day or romantic love. It's the kind of thing that you can depend on, huh? 
And you know you can depend on it because it's been proven in history. Israel knew that Yahweh had hesed for them, and they knew that because they looked back at the fact that he saved them from the Egyptians. We know that Jesus has hesed for us because he saved us on a cross. It's love that's bound in actions. And David three times tells us, right, you were faithful. You followed up what Saul had done with you by your actions of going and getting him. He said, I pray that God will be faithful to you in his actions toward you. And I promise that I will be faithful to you in your actions to him. Why is this word so important? Because it shows us the character of God himself, doesn't it? Can we trust him? We know he trusts, can trust him. Because he's done it, not in a fairy tale, but in history. He did it with the Egyptians. And he did it when he walked Jesus out of a tomb, didn't he? His actions aren't fairy tale, but grounded in the fact that there's a God who loves us and lives for us and acts on our behalf. That's who he is, and that's what David calls to. What do we make of David's actions and speech here? Particularly considering his political situation, huh? He's been named king, but he's a little bit down on the king's side, right? He's got one area. Ishbosheth has three. He's been anointed king of Israel, but he's been challenged. And it's a challenge that will last seven years. Some of the commentators I read said that David is purely a political animal here who is trying to win this very important place over to his side as a shrewd act of politics. Or is David rising above political ambitions and doing the right thing because it's the God thing? Or both? And when both happen, celebrate it. My experience is both doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, doing the God thing is the thing that benefits you. But a lot of times, like it was for Jesus on the cross, doing the God thing means sacrifice. What's going on with David here? What are his motivations? I'm going to give you two reasons why I think David is motivated by Yahweh's rather than self-motivated political action. The first is the language that I've pointed out to you. The language of blessing and hesed. It's the language of God. It's not the language of politics, power, or battle, isn't it? It's the language of self-sacrifice and loving your enemy. Sacrificing for the other. I'm committed to you and your well-being, even if it costs me. I gotta admit to you, I'm becoming the old crusty guy in the group, and that's an, I apologize to old crusty men here. But how refreshing is that? That is not the discourse or the language of our day, is it? The other guy's terrible, awful, unredeemable. It's just a constant part of our political banner, and it can seek into our personal lives, huh? We're losing this kind of awareness that we're supposed to be like God who came before us, a people of blessing and life. 
My exhortation to us today is if we're truly going to be the people of Yahweh, the Yahweh that showed Himself to David and more personally showed Himself to us, we need to be defined as a people of blessing and faithfulness and kindness. Our speech needs to be marked of it. Because if we don't behave like that, how are they going to know the character of our God? How are they going to know who He is if we don't resemble Him? It's more and more important every day. Will we love like Him? The second reason I think that we can say that David's motivations are pure here is that we're going to take a look at the story that follows it. And the story that follows this, I'm going to give you the punchline or the key to it already, is that David has nothing to do with, but the second men in charge, Abner and Joab, run it. It makes David look pretty good, and I think it gives us a picture of what life without God looks like. So let's take a look. But you're going to have to bear with me, because this is one of those Old Testament passages that's really long and makes the reader of it look stupid because he can't pronounce the names right. And I've already tried this once, and I'm going to fail. So here we go, okay? It's going to be fun. Are we ready? Okay. This is what happens next after David blesses the people of... um, Yeah, wherever that was. (laughs) Meanwhile... Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahiam. And he made him king over Gilead, Ishuri, and Jezra, and also Ephraim, Benjamin, and all of Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. And the tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. And the length of time David was asking in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left, what is that place called? Menahaniam, and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zuriah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool, and one group sat on the other. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, twelve men from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. And each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together, dead, I might add. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkoth Hazurim, which means a place of sorrow, I believe. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. And the three sons of Zariah, which is David's aunt, so the three sons would be his nephews, his cousins, excuse me, were there. Joab, Abashia, and Ashel. Now Ashel was fleet-footed as a wild gazelle, and he chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor the left as he pursued him. And Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Ashel? It is, he answered. And then Abner said to him, turn aside to the right or to the left and take one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Ashael would not stop chasing him. And again, Abner warned Ashael, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? 
But Ashael refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Ashael's stomach and the spear came out through his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when they came to the place where Ashael had been fallen and died. But Joab and Abishiah pursued Abner. And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammah near Giah on the way back to the wasteland of Gibeon slash Orland. No. Okay. And then the men of Benjamin rallied them. So this is happening in Benjamin. So they're fleeing back and all the locals take up Abner's side, right? And they formed themselves to a group and took the strategic land on top of a hill. And Abner called out to Joab, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? And Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came to a halt. And they no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. And all that night, Abner and his men marched through through the Arabah, and they crossed the Jordan and continued through the morning hours and came to Manahayim or something. And they they went home. And then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. And besides Ashael, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. And they took Ashael and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. And then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron in daybreak. So talk amongst yourself. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Makes me glad for Jesus' kingdom, huh? Let's try to sort out the details and see if we can make some sense of this. First, the people are involved. I've already filled you in. We have the number ones on both sides. Seems to me like they're the political and military strategists for these people that take care of the dirty work. Right? Abner, who's associated or had been associated with Saul, and Joab, who's the guy who at this point is David's relative and doing his dirty work as well. I think it's important that we notice that neither David, David nor Ishbosheth are involved in this battle. At least in a small part, that gives me a little bit of hope. And like I said before, we see what happens when God's at the center of what you do and then when God's vacant. The next thing that we see is the place that they meet. And in the next slide, you'll see um, that Abner's camp or um, Ishboseth's camp is up in the north, right? just below the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, which you can't actually see on this map, but is north of Jerusalem and Jericho, which is in the region of Benjamin. And David's camp at Hebron is here in the south, just, um, that would be just west of this dead, or the, yeah, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. Um, and the two groups marched their armies up to this middle ground, which would have been close to Jerusalem in the center. And two battles take place. The first battle is suggested by Abner. Let's take your best 12 men and my best 12 men and we'll let them fight and see who comes out the winner. And shockingly, they grab in battle. Each one grabs the other by the head, sticks the sword in the side of their mouth, and all 12 of them sit there dead on the ground. And after that happens, all chaos breaks loose, huh? 
And what started as an organized battle to resolve a difference turned into a blood fest, it seems. And this guy, Ashashel, who we're told runs like a gazelle, sets his sight on Abner and will not stop pursuing him. These three cousins of David, Joab, Abishai, and Abishel, are kind of like the, they seem like a necessary evil in the story, right? They're going around on David's behalf, but wherever they go, they kind of create trouble. And the reason, it seems, is that they don't have the Yahweh perspective that David has. But that's kind of neither here nor there. How does the battle resolve? Like I said, Abner takes off and he's running after he gives anyway. He takes off, he's running. He goes up onto this high hill. The men of Benjamin surround him. And so it seems like to me, by the way the story is told, that he's achieved a place of power, right? His army has been fortified. He's got the high ground. And he calls out um, to Joab and says, do you want this battle to go on forever? And Joab's response is, if you hadn't have said something, it would have. That's our story. What do we make of it? You know, I struggled about this, how to make sense of this or what to say to you about this all week. And I was struck as I was thinking about it, about this phrase that the kids of Australia and New Zealand used to, to use when they were talking about stories. And what they would say is, who are the goodies and who are the baddies? Right? Who are, we'd say, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? But it was kind of cute and, um, I don't know, you just stuck with me as someone who didn't use that language um, growing up. And that's one of the questions we have about this story, huh? Joab is associated with David, so he must be a goodie, right? And Abner is associated with Saul, and so he must be a baddie. How are we going to determine? You know, Jesus says some helpful things on occasion. And one of the things that he said is that you'll know the goodies by what? The fruit that they bear. So if we're to stop and look at this story, is anyone bearing any good fruit at all? There's not a lot of it. Um, but I do think the narrator gives Abner a lot of... Um, he gives him a lot of screen time to use a movie metaphor, right? Let's take a look at the next slide in verse 20 and 21. As he's being chased by Ashashel, um, twice he calls out to him and gives him an opportunity for it not to end the way he does, huh? In verse 20, turn aside to the right or to the left. I don't know if I like his option. He says, take a young man, strip him, and you can have him instead of me. That's not exactly great, but at least he's trying to end the whole thing, right? And then in 21, Abner warned Ashashel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? Those are details that don't have to be in this story, do they? But they're put there, and it makes me ask why. Next slide. And then finally, at the end, maybe... At the end of this battle, who is it that calls for the truce? Once again, it's Abner. Now, you didn't want to read the slide anyways. Abner's the one who calls out to Joab and says, Are we going to continue to do this? How long will this bloodshed go on, right? Having been pastor to some family members and friends and people in another church, not here, thankfully, who died in war. It's painful. 
heartbreaking. And mothers and peers, uh, mothers and siblings and friends never quite recover from that. And so I have to give Abner some credit, huh? At the moment he got the high ground, he also called for a truce. So what do we make of this then? And I think the thing that I've been struck with is the notion of goodies and baddies in this story is pretty childish, isn't it? That's not the way life works. Most every enemy is not all good or all bad. Most every hero is not all good, are they? The short story shocks me because I want Joab to be so much better than Abner. But he isn't. I want my world to be black and white and clear and easy, and I want to have justifiable hate for that guy. But in this instance, it's pretty darn confusing. I want to ask the question that I've already answered for you. Where is God in this story? Who's blessing him, using his language, calling on him, remembering him, asking him to be the forgiver, the justifier, or the avenger? He's nowhere in this story. And that's why this story stands in such contrast to the one that comes before it, huh? When David goes to the people of Gibeon, he goes asking for the blessing and the faithfulness of God. When Joab and Abner gather together at Gibeon, they go um, with self-interest and spears and swords and daggers in hand. We need to be careful where we look for our heroes, don't we? We need to be careful what we ask for. Our hero is the one who dies for us, not kills for us. Our hero is the one who looks for the poor and the needy and protects and blesses them. You know, there are certain events that happen in your life that just never leave you. Or little conversations, at least in my life, that I'll remember that are completely right now in my mind, out of context, but were so important to me. I can remember when I was 16 year old, you know, in the Negev back in Orland, there was a pastor in my church who had taken interest in me. And we were walking across his lawn one day and he said to me, and I, I will never forgive this. He just said to me and he said, Todd, if you put your eyes on people, they will always let you down. And, you know, it wasn't something, it wasn't a sermon like this that he planned, but just a word that came from him as we were living life together. And those have been words that have been so true. Our tendency is to do that, though, huh? We want to pick our heroes that make us feel good, that support our side, that vindicate the way we think about things. And when we do that, and that hero isn't God, we end up in a mess. 